the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, powered by Bond University's Building Information Modeling Program. I'm your host, and today I'm talking with Rob Jackson from Bond Brian Digital about the process of specifying your information requirements. Specifically, we're going to talk about the good and bad examples of information requirement specifications so that people can learn about them before they start their journey. But before I start my interview with Rob, I need to talk to you about our exclusive sponsor. So Bond University are leading the way in BIM education in Australia through their Master of Building Information Modelling, an integrated project delivery course, and their micro-credential offerings. These courses were the first and remain the only university courses to be formally accredited by Building Smart Australasia and were recognised internationally with a special mention for leadership in open BIM and education in the professional research category in the 2020 Building Smart International Awards. So head over to the Bond University website via the link in the show notes to learn more about their educational offerings. Now it's time to talk with Rob. Rob, it's great to have you back on the podcast, mate. Thanks for inviting me again to have a conversation with you, uh, Nathan. And it's been great, mate. We've been catching up quite a lot lately with regards to events and online stuff, despite not being able to see each other face to face. But it has been... Um, four years since you've been a guest on the podcast, all the way back at episode seven. Uh, 40 episodes later, we're hitting 47 with this one now. Um, for those that haven't listened to episode seven yet and don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, yeah, I'm a, a director at Bomb Brand Digital, uh, which is an information management consultancy, but my background is as a project architect of about 15 years project architect. And during that time, I also sort of then took on CAD management, I think you would call it in, uh, early on. And then that became BIM management uh, and sort of did BIM management uh, within an architectural practice at Von Brown for, uh, for most of that time. Uh, and then as the government uh, in the UK sort of um, advocated doing BIM, um, my role then became sort of more full time and eventually, you know, we set up a well, we set up a brand of Bond Brand Architects, which is Bond Brand Digital, and then that led to to now my now current position, which is the director of uh, Bond Brand Digital Limited, which is its own sort of um, independent consultancy, if you like. Things have changed quite a bit for both of us um, since 2019 when we both spoke. You know, I've I've moved on from Fulton Trotter as a director there, and now have had my consultancy in place now for nearly three or sorry, nearly four years now. And as you said, your business has actually gone through some change as well. Would you like to share with the listeners, first of all, I guess, you know, who is Bond Brian Digital now? Um, Mm -hmm. Together with the services that you offer, which in reality haven't really changed that much in terms of Bond Brian Digital's offerings. So can you share, share with the listeners a little bit about both of those? Yeah, so Bond Brian Digital was a, was a brand of Bond Brian Architects for a number of years. It was like the first sub-brand, if you like, and some other sub-brands have sort of emerged out, out of that as well. Um, as part of that work, I did some consultancy for a company called Craigmaster, who offer operations and maintenance manuals. 
I was sort of advising them really on Kobe and the best sort of practice with uh, implementing Kobe, which is obviously a, a schema for handling data over for operations and maintenance. So that was kind of something I'd built up some expertise in. And through that conversation, they then sort of offered me an opportunity to go and set up a new consultancy um, uh, with with them and, and the wider brand that I'll, I'll come on to. Uh, and I decided I didn't want to leave. I, I decided that, you know, I'd spent a long time building up the brand and evolving the journey, if you like. And eventually it led to a conversation about perhaps there's kind of a joint venture in, in some of this. So what we ended up doing, to cut a long story short, is we, we ended up setting up a new business, which is Bond Brand Digital Limited, which um, was set up in just before Christmas in December 2021. Um, so it's that 15, 16 months ago or so. Um, and uh, as part of that, uh, the new company then um, became part of Build Data Group. So Build Data Group is our, our parent company. We are still partially owned by Bomb Brain Architects, but predominantly our day-to-day, if you like, is with the Build Data Group. And the Build Data Group is made up of uh, Create Master. So Create Master is now our sister company. So you know, there's a tie in there between uh, looking at information, uh, particularly obviously for handover. And the other sister company is uh, Zootech, which provides essentially a common data environment uh, solution and uh, primarily to clients or focused on clients at the moment, although, you know, offers to contractors. Uh, and really the, the group's sort of general direction of travel is really to focus on clients and uh, clients' information. Obviously, the handover part is an important part of that. The Zootech platform, you know, is part of Create Master solution. And we, we're really there as a consultancy, uh, an information management consultancy, as you said. Our, our, the business hasn't really changed. It's just evolved constantly through through a number of years. You can trace all, everything, you know, back to... To something that's gone before it and i think um what we're now really trying to do is join that process up of thinking about information requirements delivery and ultimately hand over to the client to to make that um, transition of information much smoother much more consistent and um, using technology but also based you know around expertise of, of our business and also um, the capabilities of create master to collect and um, you know, make sure that information is is to the quality that the client requires at handover. So, yeah, the business uh, as a as a, an organisation, we offer information management. That is our primary service, and um, we do do clash detection as well. Um, I would say that the balance has changed on that. Clash detection is a very small part now of what we do. We still do it, and we still offer it alongside information management. And we also do consultancy, more general consultancy, which. Um, you know, can be anything from a bit of you know training with with uh, companies or individuals, um, through to you know reviewing uh, documents or doing white papers with with other organisations. So, fairly varied. Uh, you know, if, if we know how to do it, we will help. If we don't, we will definitely point it point the direction uh, of our clients. You know, in other people's directions if it's not in our expertise. So, I think really our focus and our interest and expertise is around the information management side. Um, and as I'm sure we'll come on to, not not just models, but you know, information as a whole. Now, Rob, the reason why I wanted to get you back to talk about this, and we did talk about information requirements four years ago, or uh, forty episodes ago now, because you have been on such a journey over these last four years. I actually wanted to bring you back to talk specifically about this because of some of the things that I am seeing currently 
in the industry here in Australia. And it'd be really good to see almost if if there's kind of a mirror in the UK or whether or not there's lessons to be learned from the UK in terms of, you know, these are the steps that and mistakes that the people and, and asset owners have made in the UK. In Australia, come on, guys, let's move out. Let's jump over this and not make the same mistakes. So starting firstly um, with the ISO 19650 series as a standard series, and I'm going to start using terminology in, in line with the standard so that we're talking the proper language, but have appointing party representatives or actors matured in the UK a lot over the last four years? Like, are you seeing forward progress? I would say the, the simple answer, the very simple answer is it's mixed. Um, there is different, you know, different kind of approaches to it. So as you said, appointing party is you know, typically the clients that, that is, you know, to keep that really simple. Um, there's a lot of debate about the terminology and what we should be using, but from a client's perspective, you see different things. You still see clients asking for BIM level two, which effectively was superseded when the ISO 19650 series was published in the UK. It's now called uh, the UK BIM framework has, has replaced BIM, BIM level two. So you still see clients asking for that. And you still see clients um, naively sort of saying, I just want BIM or I just want Kobe or, you know, I'm not really going into detail. You also have clients who have been on that journey for a bit longer, um, who have a set of documents, we'll call them documents for now, who've then gone through possibly with their consultants and updated those documents and really taken all the old UK sort of references of the British standards that existed that the ISO came from um, and just changed the terminology and said, right, we're now ISO 19650 process, you've got to do this. Even then, some of that still refers to BIM level two, so the mixture of going on. What Then you've got a kind of third um, tranche, which is a number of people who've been through this process. So they're a bit further ahead, and what they've not seen is actually any value or any, any output, uh, any use to them. And we're seeing clients almost come come to us and say we didn't get much out of this can you help us kind of relook at this and reimagine um you know what what we how we get better at, can we get better out of this process that really aligns to our business and so you're starting to see those more mature clients yeah not throw away what they've done before but kind of almost start with a clean slate clean slate clean piece of paper not just take the documents they did before and um, Yes, there's bits in there that I'm sure, you know, to every client that's useful, but actually really sit down and look at ISO 19650 and say, what does it actually want us to do in this process? And what do we actually want to get out of it? So, you know, we've obviously worked probably since the last time we, we spoke four years ago, which is a long time, seems like a very long time ago. It didn't seem that far, but obviously the time moves on is, you know, we've written some information requirements for some pretty um, big clients, including the Department for Education, the Ministry of Justice, a number of other private clients as well. And, you know, we've tried to move it on. And interestingly, um, some have described them as, um, you know, almost futuristic and, and very challenging. But in reality, they are, when you break them down, they're, they have simple concepts behind them. Yes, there's a lot of detail, but if you want information delivered consistently, then you have to be, you know, very rigorous about what you want. And what you still see from many, many information requirements is information requirements in a PDF document. You know, page three mentions that they want an ONM manual. Page five mentions that they want a uh, health and safety risk register. Page 10 mentions they want some floor plans. Page 50 mentions they want some sections. 
And so there is information requirements, but I think what I see, uh, and it's a generalization because of course there are mature clients, but there's still a, a lack of understanding about what um, an exchange information requirement is about, which is just purely about the information you want. So you still see information requirements mentioning digital twins and you know all these aspirations of goals and all the things, and it's waffly, um, uh, you know, as. Uh, a colleague and I'd say almost a friend of mine as well who sort of says you know bin prattle and um, you know trying to get rid of the bin prattle what does it you know what does this in this document does this sentence actually tell me anything about what you want and if it doesn't it's it's prattle basically you know I'm probably as guilty as anybody of you know writing stuff that probably could be cut out I think everyone can benefit from peer review um but you know increasingly We've looked at exchange information requirements as purely about list lists effectively of information that the client wants, whether that is models, whether it's data or alphanumerical information as it's referred to under 19650, geometrical information, you know, is that is part of the models, or and I probably our big focus at the moment is documentation. And that includes traditional deliverables and a lot of clients slash consultants, because obviously clients are advised by consultants, miss kind of the point that actually it's about defining purely about what you want, when do you want it? Okay, it's driven by why you want it. But to be honest, from a delivery perspective, I don't really care why you want it. I just want to be able to know what you want me to deliver. Um, you know, and any sort of other sort of information behind that, whether you know it's like asking for fire rating, or actually I want these values to be to be defined as well. So there's a lot of detail, a lot of work. And there are no shortcuts to it. Ultimately, you've got to sit and put the work in and invest in it. And uh, as we were talking about before we came on the podcast, you know, the, the information is as an asset as much as your physical building is. And I often hear people say, I just want to get on build it. Well, yeah, but the information is critical to that process. And if you've got information waste in there, then you're paying more money for that waste. And you should try and cut that as much as you should cut it out in a, in a building. So almost thinking about sustainability from a, from an information perspective, um, to make sure you get the right information at the right time to make the right decisions fundamentally. Now, the thing that I found that I struggle with most, and the reason why I wanted to get you back on is that here in Australia, I think we've specifically reached a level of maturity where people know about BIM, but they don't really understand why they want it. And they just ask it for it because everyone else is asking for it. And, from my perspective, you said you do have your varying levels of experience and maturity, BIM maturity or digital maturity that, that you're seeing in the marketplace in the UK. How do we move these people forward? So the challenge is right now is that you're, you you've see there's clients that have gotten that, that kind of bad experience. They've, they've turned around and they've realised that the first time they've had a go at this that basically BIM's actually delivered them zero value. And now yeah. I'm seeing, I know that I'm, what I'm seeing here in Australia is the same problem. We're going to see a lot of these um, asset owners not actually getting the value that they really need. You know, how is that methodology? How are we going to move these these asset owners or these these appointing parties forward to actually kind of you know make the change? It's obviously education is one thing, but how how you how how was the process occurring in the UK? Obviously, falling over and making the mistake, and then and then moving forward, or is there opportunity for asset owners to actually learn from the mistakes of others? 
I, I, look, I mean, I, I think even our own journey, you know, we make mistakes and we do. You know, yeah, we do. That, you know, that, that you could have done better or done differently, you know, through learning. And I, you know, I look back at some of the information requirements that I wrote three, four years ago and I, you know, I think, oh, I would have done that differently. Uh, you know, I would because our learning moves on and, and we're trying to improve constantly. We're just doing a piece of work actually for a client where we wrote the information requirements and, you know, positively they said, you know, now you've written them, you know, can we can we simplify this? Can we present it in a different way? And they're investing in us reimagining even the database we built for them. And, and that's a real positive that they understand that, you know, this thing is quite, you know, the timescale to develop this was pretty quick. And actually we need to go back and even pull apart what we've only done very recently. I think to answer your question, I think, I think education through uh, good example case studies is important. I think, you know, trying to share knowledge, uh, obviously it's something I've done recently on your uh, your ARCHI intensive event in terms of showing what, what we're currently doing. You know, that's our current knowledge of where we are and what we want to try and do. Probably blows a lot of people's minds. So that's one way. I think as a business, though, what we've been trying to encourage clients to do increasingly is to do what we call a, a health check, an information management health check. And that health check is actually focused on looking at the information they're already asking for. And that's not just in their BIM documentation, as we as we might call it. So it's actually looking at everything that they're specifying, if you like, when they're going out to, to tender. And that includes their employer's requirements, for example. And employer's requirements documents historically have had information requirements in there. And when you dig deeper, you find that they've got an O&M manual, a structure document somewhere. They've got a filing structure. They've actually got a lot of information uh, you know, requirements already in their business, whether they're doing BIM or not. So we get clients going, oh, well, we're a bit kind of behind the times and we haven't done BIM. And, you know, perhaps we should just do a, um, a pilot project and see what we get out of it. And yes, you could go off and do that, but you're just going to be making the same mistake because all you end up doing is delivering some data that you still don't know whether you want it or not. So for us, it's about doing this kind of health check, bit of work. And again, there's an investment from the client to even do that piece of work, which involves, you know, looking through their documents, having conversations with them, with their teams as well, not just like one individual, but their teams of, you know, whether it's the person managing the asset at the end of it or somebody who's interested in sustainability within the business or fire or whatever it may be to try and get an understanding. And once you've done that, then we can start to say, well, actually, we've got a lot of this already. We've got a, you know, a good starting point here, or you've got a bad starting point, depending on what, where, where you are. Um, and then we say, look, you know, this is our advice to take it forwards. And that might then be, right, we develop this into a, a detailed set of requirements that ultimately get pulled out of docu other documents. And you know, that's effectively what we did for the Department for Education. There's loads and loads of information requirements already. And in fact, I would say 90 to 95% of the content that's now in their exchange information requirements already existed previously. It was just done in a different format and a different way. So for us, you know, it, it isn't as big a step, I think, to the clients to go from nothing to managing their information. And I'm not even going to say BIM in that. I'm just going to say managing their information effectively. And a lot of that is around what people would call unstructured information, documents and drawings, uh, certificates, and, and all those kind of things that the client wants. They need and want to manage their facility. And it's all very well saying, well, it should all be digital. Well, of course it should ultimately. But if you don't start with that kind of First thing, and even even in sort of traditional um, analog uh, deliverables, if you like, you've got no chance of digitizing that. So, for example, I always use the example of saying, "Well, 
if we've managed to work out you're asking for a door schedule, then potentially we could remove that as a deliverable later down the line and say this is delivered through data, either directly within the model or in Explorer, you know, view of that, whether that's Kobe or something else. So for me, that's where our work has been with clients to actually look at them and get them on a page that they understand, which is traditional deliveries. And then, then you can start to look at the model. And really the model to me is actually in most cases, not in all cases, but in most cases, it's just a vehicle for delivering the information, the alphanumerical information largely, and obviously coordinating the design as a benefit to the client if you can remove risk as well and you know the contractor can lower their price, for example. So there is benefit in there, but certainly most clients shouldn't be starting with, I want a model. They should be starting with the information they need. That's the ideal scenario. But there are clients who you know have limited budgets and think the best way is to go to uh you know to a case study and, and jump into that case study and yeah you know like the power for education is another one where we did a case study and then we did their information requirements in some way so i'm not saying it's the wrong way to do it it's helpful because they can understand some more of the process but ultimately i think you could go and talk to lots of clients who not made the mistake but been through the journey um and they probably give similar advice and say, look, you actually just need to sit down and work out the information you want. Forget about models for a second. And ultimately, your journey can get there. You know, I steal lots of stuff from Australia talking about digital twins when <laughs> they need them. Um, you know, and, and actually, they're, they're kind of missing the point. You can't really go to a digital twin until you've really figured out the information you want, how you're going to use it, the technology. And also, probably the most important thing, people. I mean, it's all very well asking for a model, but unless you've got people in the client organization or you're going to employ external consultants to keep your model up to date, you're kind of you're possibly driving down a, a route where it's just going to be you know, paying a lot of money for something that's going to sit in a, in a digital, digital drawer somewhere. Are you seeing, and this is a really important question, are you seeing any business cases? So obviously the Department of Education said 95% of that information they already asked for, but it was basically not asked for in a consistent manner or it was buried in a million other documents. And I could say the mm-hmm. same is uh, equivalent to um, me as an architect delivering a project using NatSpec. Each of the trade sections have deliverables buried in each of the trade sections for the contractor. Yep. So. Right now, my national specification system is basically a mess in the, in the sense of trying to bring it. If it wanted to come forward to a 19650 workflow, each each deliverable from that specification would be tab, tabulated into an EIR. Yeah, ideally. I mean, you, you've, nobody's got the time to go and look through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents and millions of different, you know, not just one document, but lots of documents to find it. Um, yeah. The DFE had, you know, as an example, had uh, in their technical specification, there was a mention of fire ratings for doors. You know, well, actually, we can collect that in the model and, yeah, we can list that as a requirement and trying to bring it together into a single, uh, I'm going to call it a resource now, not necessarily a document, but a resource because the resource could be could be Excel, but it could be ideally or better in a database. Um, so, yeah, you need to be able to, to do that. Now, I, I would guarantee if you went back to the previous... DFE's framework, of that 90%, call out the 100% if you like, probably most of it was never delivered because there was no effectively a checklist of, of deliverables. Now, what happens is the DFE employs a technical advisor um, effectively performing that information management role 
on behalf of the appointed party, the client, to check that they're receiving the information at the stages that they asked for. So there's a definitive list and, and there's no getting away from that. Does it mean the information's good? Not necessarily. You've still got to check the information within it. Um, but through that process, uh, you know, and the lesson learned, you know, the, the DFE, who I still keep in touch with, um, is that some deliverables were probably um, over ambitious at certain stages. So, you know, they were asking me for all the M&E drawings, for example, at stage three. And actually what they really needed was the schematics at that point, and they didn't need all of the detailed drawings. So they've actually, you know, through this process, and one of the things I'm most proud of with that piece of work is that it didn't just sit in a drawer and it didn't sit and just get sent out and nobody ever looked at it again. It's being refined and constantly tweaked both from the, the client's perspective themselves, but also from taking feedback from the contractor and the, and the supply chain about what is reasonable, realistic, what could be cut out, what could be rationalized. So it's an evolving piece of, um, uh, an evolving resource rather than a static resource that sits on a shelf for five years and you come back and you realize that all the standards have changed and, and it's all out of date. So it's trying to constantly move along um you know to make sure that the information is is right and current for that point in time and and is cutting out the waste in many ways which again you know is what we're trying to do uh, as i mentioned earlier so um that's the ideal route that information you don't just get a consultant to help you write an EIR, an eir or an information requirement and that's it it's done you know it's an ongoing thing you're investing in in your information you want to receive and also in that process if you like to, to make sure you get that information efficiently and effectively and it might vary you know there's quite different procurement routes which you know have definitely come across where it makes it more complicated about a different procurement route means different information obviously you've got existing buildings and new buildings which are, are different as well in, in their own case um, and you often see clients asking want to jump straight into you know managing their asset you know it's step baby steps in some ways for everybody. Um, but I think for me, the real simple starting point is to list out everything you want to receive from another party at the different stages. Even if you haven't gone through all of the purposes that I say 19650, you know, that's a really good starting point to then look at the list and go, have we got everything or are we missing things or actually do we need any of this stuff? Now, what I was privileged to be able to see was your um, Building Smart International Award entry. I was very grateful as a judge to be able to see that work that you put together for that Department of Education, you know, pilot project. And you were fortunate enough last year to win that design, the design, the open, the international design award for that. So congratulations on that. And, and, and I think it's well deserved. And, and it was tough competition as well. I don't think it gets any tougher than trying to uh, beat a team that has the father of IFC in it. Um, it was the third time of trying to win that award. Um, and to say that when we did win it, um, not only was I chuffed that we finally did win it, but actually, yeah, the competition made it even more sweet in some ways to know that we'd won that award. In fairness, the the competitor's um, entry was very similar to ours. It was a client you know, writing proper information requirements structuring those information requirements and and doing the verification and validation against them. There was probably not a lot of difference between them. I think the real key to that, though, was the fact that the project ultimately led to a government department implementing IFC across their whole uh, framework of a £7 billion framework. If that's not a project that had you know, fundamental influence, I don't, I don't know what is. So, yeah, I'm extremely proud, uh, you know, that, 
the team, our team uh, and the, the wider team of the client and the delivery team were able to put the, the effort in to do that. And there was an awful lot of effort that went way beyond probably our fee proposal allowed, but I was determined. I just saw it in the beginning as a project that had all of the ingredients to make it uh, a really award-winning project. And I said it right at the beginning. I said, I want to win this Building Smart Award to the team. And I said, I'm not, you know, I'm going to go hell for leather. So I need your help. And to be fair, they all contributed to, you know, providing and, and updating the models and making sure that we could ultimately, you know, provide a really, really, uh, really good set of information to the client uh, you know, as part of that project. Now, from my perspective, I've come in at the back end as a judge for an awards program. And from my perspective, I actually see the project, as you say, as, a, as, a, as an exemplar. Uh, or a great example of an outcome from, I'm guessing, a well-structured process with all of the actors involved, you know, the appointing party and all of the other consultants that are relevant. Now, being a podcast, sadly, there's no visual component here to share with the listeners, so we're not actually able to kind of go, well, here's an outcome of what was what occurred, but people could probably go onto the Building Smart International website to see the award entry and, and learn a bit more detail about that. But Today we're here to talk about the process of specifying that information and kind of almost like the information requirement briefing. Now, for it's, and I know we've only got a short amount of time to talk about this and it's kind of probably a bit more complex than being able to answer, you know, in a, in a short podcast conversation. But in terms of a Reader's Digest version, how was that process driven and, and who led that process in terms of kind of I always kind of look at it as kind of whenever I'm an, as an architect, you're the same approach. You know, we're sitting there and we're taking a brief from a client. You know, how do how was that information extracted? You know, when we've talked in the past, it's actually and it's kind of disagreed with some clients here in Australia about the approach. But the clients need to take the lead in this sort of thing, and and you become kind of almost like a support network to enable that. Yeah. So I think for that particular project, I think. There are, pos- there are positives and negatives, and the negatives are lessons learned rather than necessarily negatives um, yep. or challenges, if you like. Particularly um, a project that was meant to be it was meant to be a six month R and D project, really, really quick, quick and dirty, shall we say, to some degree, quick, quick project for, for six months to look at the research of, of designing two schools, one on an urban site, one on a rural site, for determining whether you could afford how much it would cost to effectively do a a carbon neutral school and so the, the, the project itself was very focused in design you know designing a building that could meet those objectives and the design team were very focused on that and so was the client and there was a brief when i you know first came on uh, came on board and luckily i was on board before anybody was appointed other than the project managers so the design team hadn't been appointed which is one thing that the iso standard really advocates is that information management from the client side is done um, you know, is there on, on day one, or if not, in fact, not even on day one, before day one. Um, and in neither of there wouldn't even be a project manager because you'd even be specifying what the project management team had to deliver. Um, that said, you know, I, it was almost the perfect scenario because we had time to do that. And we had time to write a set of requirements that then went out to the design team that they were all signing up to. And we could do the capability and capacity assessment of those designers. The the downside was we didn't have very long to write information requirements. I think in my fee it was about ten days work to write information requirements because there wasn't you know, there wasn't huge scope in that. So 
I'd spend more than that. I probably did more like 15 or 20 days to write it. Um, so about a month's work. Um, and most of it was based on previous knowledge and experience of what the schools were doing and you know, what the schools. And I went off and did a bit of research about the government website and what they sort of collect about schools. I went off and uh, had to look at other documents and tried to work out what we needed to deliver. The other thing, there were two things for me, though, uh, to sort of simplify it. One was carbon. So how do we measure carbon? And secondly, how do we cost that building? So because the design needs to know, can it be carbon neutral and can it can it afford that? So those are the two, were the two big drivers. So I spent a bit of time trying to figure out what quantities we wanted in the requirements, tried to get talk to the QS about what they'd need. They probably learned some lessons through this process as well and you know what was achievable in the model and tried to understand um in this case with a particular technology how we could get data to to drive the carbon analysis um and then it was really you know those requirements went out to the to the designers and they return their capability assessments in fairness um the architect that was selected and and i kind of you know there's there's the balance between this didn't have any BIM experience, but they'd filled their capability capacity assessment format to tell us that. So we knew that on day one, but they very much in their submission were saying, look, you know, we're really willing to get our hands dirty, learn and work with you to do that. And that's all they ever ask of anybody. I'd actually rather they said they didn't know anything than said they know everything. Um, I won't name them, but some consultants said they knew a lot more than they possibly did. Um, and that's probably even more challenging. Some were a little resistant to it at the beginning, thinking BIM was not that important. And then as soon as they got their hands into it, they realized you know, the importance of it and, and so on. Even the client probably, you know, we all made mistakes in that process. And it was fast and you know, it was challenging. Um, but ultimately, you know, I was fortunate enough, and I guess that where we slightly deviated from the ISO is I was effectively client side and delivery side. So I ended up being the information manager across both both client and delivery organizations, which to me was actually the perfect scenario because there was, if somebody said, well, can you go and talk to the client about you need this? Well, I'm like, I already know I need this because I defined it. And yeah, obviously there were questions, uh, questions back to the client and, and vice versa the other way. But it was really a kind of learning experience of actually, you know, I think in the information files, we missed one piece of data that we needed to go back to the designers and ask for an additional piece of data which is not bad going considering it had such a limited time to write those requirements. Um, and was it perfect? You know, absolutely not. Did the carbon process, was it perfect? No. But did I learn lots of lessons about how to do it next time and improve it? Yes. You know, it probably drives my thinking more around, do we need an industry standard for this rather than trying to do it on a project level basis, equally the same with the cost, the cost analysis as well. So I think, you know, if you had time to go back in it, and I did do lessons learned, positive and negative, and, you know, there were probably more positives than there were negatives. Um, but that obviously ultimately fueled the, the client's knowledge about actually we need to do this across our framework that was coming up and, and it drove that, you know, if, does it include all the carbon costs? No, it doesn't. You know, it's not it's not as ambitious in the across the wider framework, but it took all the lessons learned, the good stuff, and applied it properly. And uh, you know, I think um, the proof is ultimately in the, in the projects that are coming out of the back of that, which is a whole probably another conversation in itself. So you know, for me, it demonstrated what it's out to do. Um, you know, ultimately told the client, can you afford a carbon neutral building? Um, you know, or not, or you know, what are the uplift costs for doing that? And there was a whole, as I understand it, there was a load of 
interesting questions about how you actually measure what is carbon neutral as well and what it, you know can you go and plant a, tr- plant a load of trees to offset it or is that actually right. should that be valid and you know again the brief probably could have learned from that but the, if you look at what the department for education are doing in that space they're still taking that forward and you know they ultimately actually built although it was only a theoretical project they actually built some of the classrooms for um uh, the climate uh, change um conference and you know they've taken that forward again i think they've got some more pieces of work off the back of that as well so you know it, it's kind of taking it's a part again part of a journey uh, there's part of a journey there with carbon there was even a part of a journey with space and how you deal with space you know do you actually say or squeeze all these spaces down or do you actually standardize spaces around particular modules effectively to learn allow modular design so it's all interlinked and i'll see information management is part of that process it's not the only thing but it's it's helping to contribute to better school design ultimately with your 15 to 20 days of information requirement documenting you know how much of that was kind of guiding the client versus you having to do that work kind of digesting the the information in the background it was a conversation and it was a conversation about look my gut feeling says we should do this what's your thoughts yes no you know we had a conversation about it but obviously we had to bring in such a short space of time to build a set full set of resources so we're not just talking about the information requirements talking about the project information protocol project information standard project information production methods and procedures you know i had to put a common data environment onto the project and get that set up from scratch as well um to demonstrate that process so you know it was a it was a conversational thing but it was a lot of in that particular instance a lot of me going right i think this is what you need and taking a best guess at it and because we just didn't have the time to sit and go through detailed conversations about all the information requirements i would love to have gone through the documentation that they needed on the job but again we just didn't have the time so we had to cut our cloth accordingly and we can always cut our, on any project we can cut our cloth accordingly um but obviously the ideal is to have would have a set of information requirements fully written out before you even consider even even like procuring a project that would be the ideal um but you know r&d projects are r&d projects they're you know they're there to learn and uh, for everybody and i think everybody got something out of it and the architect who came to the table with barely any experience was absolutely fantastic and only a small practice but they delivered a spot on set of data and went above and beyond to to do that and i couldn't compliment them enough really um it just so happened to be an architect user, but we had Reddit users, uh, we had Vectorworks users, and we had Bentley users on the projects. And, you know, all of them probably would say they learned something through that process. Now, you touched on common data environments and having to set one of them up uh, for the project. Um, here in Australia, I, I kind of see projects kind of taking off and clients asking for deliverables in accordance with ISO 19650, yet they have not a single CDE, you know, their own CDE set up or a strategy for CDEs for the, you know, the appointed parties or even container naming standards before they start or even kind of partway into the project. (laughs) Has the UK moved on from that yet? (laughs) Because I know here in Australia we're struggling to even get there. Everyone just asks for digital twins. As you said earlier, they're asking for digital twins yet they want BIM and yet, they haven't even taken the first step, which was originally, you know, the level one approach of, you know, first thing you need to do, set up a common data environment and have a containing namers, naming strategy. 
in Australia, we just decided to run before we could walk. And there's some of that going on here. And I said, I probably my answer is similar to the one before. It's mixed again. You know, some some clients have a common data environment. Some have gone to, I'm going to slightly say the extreme of saying, right, everyone has to use their common data environment, which I'm not a massive fan of, but I can see why they would do that. Um, others, you know, will accept that they have their own common data environment and will let the supply chain equally use theirs and transfer information between. That's not an easy process at the moment. It could be made an awful lot better. And of course, then there are clients who don't have anything, as you, as you said, and that's still quite a lot of clients, unfortunately. It doesn't mean you can't apply an ISO 19650 process because at the end of the day, you can delegate, uh, you're still accountable, the client appointing party is still accountable for making sure that there's a common data environment in place, but they don't have to do it themselves. Where that becomes challenging is when there's no, you know, if a contractor comes on board, most almost every contractor I know has a common data environment. So it's not an issue. Where it becomes an issue is when they're design-led projects and, you know, there's a cost and the client says, well, actually the contract's going to come along with one of these in three, four, five, six months, whenever the design phase is finished and therefore we won't bother. Um, increasingly, though, clients are realising that, uh, take away the, the terminology and just call it a data store, storing yep. their own information and in their data is, is fundamental to, you know, it's all very well asking for thousands of deliverables, but if you haven't got anywhere to put it, forget all the process stuff of, you know, the approval process, even just having a data store that's structured in a way. Now we're starting to see clients, you know, explore even just basic things like SharePoint. At least that's a starting point. It might not be a common data environment, but it's at least giving them somewhere to put this information that their own colleagues can access this information. We're probably lucky in the UK that we have a naming standard convention, uh, you know, as part of our national annex, causes much debate on Twitter and uh, and elsewhere. Um, and it's quite funny because I, I remember talking to a guy from um, Finland who said, "God, you, you the new lot of the UK are obsessed by standards," but actually he'd realised how beneficial they could be to his projects. And we whinge about them and we complain about them, as you probably would call us whinging poms. Um, <laughs> but you know we. In reality, we we have we have it pretty good in, in fairness. And yes, there's debate about you know whether you should use this code or that code, and I'm sure that would go on whatever the system. But you know, we start from a reasonably good place in, in that regard. Don't get me wrong, I still see people using it really badly, everyone using a different project code, and it still happens. Obviously, where we're the information manager, we we try and drive that standard common data environment or no common data environment. I think increasingly though. Clients need to think of common data environments or data stores as not just about documents, but ultimately about data. And without getting sort of in a, a sales mode, you know, our sister company, Zootech, that's one of the things that, that it offers. It's not just storing documents, but it can store data. And to me, as we move forward, that's going to be an important part of the puzzle is it's, you know, if you want to retrieve this data and um, you know, look at things like the Grenfell uh, fire tragedy in the UK, can you go and look across your whole estate and find out where a particular type of cladding was used? And most clients probably couldn't answer yes. Yes, there are solutions out there that can do search, things like New Former, you know, it's like effectively a giant search engine and you could probably find it, but, you know, it'd be a lot easier if you could use data to do that process. So, um, you know, and obviously we don't want to repeat stuff like, like Grenfell. So the more people manage their information properly and effectively, and I'll come back to it, they have to invest in people to do that. It doesn't just sit there and manage itself. You've got to, you know, have somebody on top of it and making sure it's kept up to date. Um, 
whether you're using a Catherine system or not. So for me, that's, that's an important part of the, of this journey and, and a common data environment definitely has to form part of the, uh, the discussion, but you know, there are small clients and small projects where probably the cost would outweigh the benefit to some degree, but you know, most clients we probably deal with probably should have some kind of way of storing, you know, consistently their information, even if it isn't what, you know, technically it's called a common data right. It's more of a, an, an EDMS, electronic data management or document management system. Before we close out, there's something I guess I want to talk about as well. Now, I was uh, presented at the Future Infrastructure Summit here in Brisbane a couple of months ago now. And one of the things that struck me when I was up on stage and I was presenting on kind of some of the things that we've been doing wrong uh, with, with BIM deliverables. And one of the things that struck me is I asked the audience how many people within the audience had read the level of information need standard. And it's obviously at this stage, not, it's not a, uh, an international standard yet and it's not applicable really in Australia. But for those following ISO 19650 suite of standards, I would assume that most people would go and obtain and look at it. Now, this was an audience that would have, would probably be some of the most mature users or, you know, experienced people within the country. Uh, guess how many people have read the standard? <laughs> Not many, I'm guessing. <laughs> three. Three <laughs> no, people. Oh, three no, people. And uh, I was just completely um, bamboozled. And, and, and I guess what that demonstrated to me was the reason why we probably have uh, misspecification or over-specification of information on projects here in Australia because of the fact that people are not applying the principles from the level of information need standard. And that one of the things I found was is that when I actually read that standard in the first instance two or three years ago, as soon as I read it, it kind of it put a light switch in my brain in terms of changing my way of thinking completely about how we go about all of this. Is it the same in the UK or is actually there are some, <laughs> uh, you know, people within the industry actually interested in that standard and adopting it? I think for me, level of information need is a kind of almost like a technical term that's almost over technical in terms of what it actually is trying to ask for, which is how much information or if you've got an information requirement, exactly what do you need that information requirement to deliver? And again, it's not just about models. So if you take a document, you know, and you want, you say, well, I want this drawing in a PDF format. I want it at scale one to 50 on an A, you know, on an A1 drawing. Uh, and this is, you know, it needs to contain a north point and a scale bar. Uh, it needs to contain the room naming and so on. You know, that to me is what level information need is. It's just specifying common sense what you want. I guess what it's tried to do, and the, the main goal of it, was to move away from stuff like LOD, so level mm -hmm. of detail, and um, which is just a numbered system that didn't really tell you a lot. And have I got this perfected absolutely not but you know alphanumerical is pretty clear you know what's the what's the property called what's the property set it needs to live in what are the values it needs to to be provided when do you need to provide it all of that information is forming part of the information requirement so i often see you know and i probably made this mistake i can hold my hands up and say i put columns in some of my requirements saying level of information needs and the more i looked at it the more i thought about it the more i thought i don't even need this term anywhere near my my requirements. I think um, <clears throat> from what I've seen, there um, 
particularly probably from Australia, is criticism that the ISO 19650 doesn't tell you exactly what you've got to provide. Well, it, it never is going to. It's a framework for a process. And it, yes, it says you need to provide you know, an exchange information requirement as part of your tender. Here's broadly what it needs to include. And it doesn't go into the detail of saying, right, you know, uh, you need to provide scale against a drawing or whatever. Um, level of information need is a level below that in terms of like more detail. And if you go and look at it, it's obviously got some geometrical examples, which we tried to, you know, try to align to as much as possible. And we got it quite right. I don't think we probably have yet, but we're trying to restructure it in that way consistently. And as you said, if you're asking for information that is never going to be used, just in the, in, just in the off chance it might be used, you're probably burning money that you don't need to burn. And the reality is the supply chain just need a really good structured set of information requirements that they can deliver against. And the client needs to be absolutely clear in what they're asking for. And I've seen clients ask for data fields that they don't even themselves know what they're supposed to be in there. So it's got to be waste because they, they don't know. So for me, it's all just about putting down, again, I'll come back to it and call it really simplistically lists of information with effectively fields of information that you, you might want to put against that. And we don't see much of that yet. We still don't see really comprehensive information requirements for clients. I, I did see, I remember seeing one probably three years ago, and it had gotten way too far. It had completely made up IFC entities and gone, you know, complete opposite end of the extreme. And, you know, some silly money was put against even just reviewing it, never mind delivering it. So you can go the opposite way. Um, and people call some of our information requirements challenging to deliver, but uh, I would argue when you break it down, they're actually quite, they're fun, there's some fundamentals in there. Some of it is placeholders, you know, Kobe requires certain fields to be provided. So some bits are, are there, maybe not because they need to be filled in, but they're trying to follow a schema. Um, but yeah, just adding lots of data, just just in case you might need it, is definitely, well, it's costing you money ultimately, and, and it is going to cost time as well on a project. So it doesn't make sense. And so it's about getting that right level of, of the information that you need, level of information need, um, you know, against those deliverables that you're you're asking for um, and being really hard on yourself about, do I really need this? Do I, where is it going to go? Can I actually manage it myself once I've received it, you know, once the asset is, is handed over? And if the answer to that is no, then it's redundant and it should be removed. I just think that's the killer here in Australia where people are asking for placeholder placeholders for data because they don't know their information needs it's like well if you don't know what they are then you don't need them it's like i i used the analogy when i went presented the other week and it was like well when you go into a restaurant you only order what you need to eat you don't turn around and order the whole menu thinking oh i'll order this extra 10 plates of food just in case um imagine trying to pay for that at the end and and i and i joke about um you know we're doing a few big tunnels here in brisbane at the moment it's like well we build two big tunnels for our trains and they just build a third one just in case, yeah? But they, they're smart when it comes to the physical asset, but when it comes to information, they they kind of completely forget. The, they lose People lose the plot. Now, uh, Yeah, and, and you could build in some kind of redundancy in there to say, you know, in an in, in, in exchange information requirement over a long project, you might say, look, you, know, you need to allow a cost for providing potentially a number of bits of other data that we identify through our organization, but asking for it on day one in the hope that you're just guessing about what you might need. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's costing you money. And, you know, why waste money when you can ask for better things and just ask for good for what you actually need rather than asking for bad or average for, for lots of information that you probably don't need. 
And I think that's the challenge, right? Because the cost of it in a tender is probably negligible or sorry, pretty expensive. But then when it comes to asking for a variation saving at the back end of the project, you're going to get nothing for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I saw a project where a bin was priced as a million pounds on a job. It was it. Do I think it cost that? Absolutely not. Had the client over-specified personally, I believe they had, and I told them that as well. They said, I think it's too challenging what you're you're asking for. Um, and if you cut this back, you could significantly reduce that amount of money. The, the project was over budget anyway. So, But I said, your, your information management is adding to that, that, that over budget uh, nature. And you know, we ultimately went and looked at their information requirements. We cut it down further. I think we cut it down 50% on that project and we went and cut it further when we started writing the information requirements with them. So, you know, they'll learn that lesson. As you said, you know, you don't want to go and pay for a menu you can't afford anyway. Um, and you have to think harder about it. Isn't information? I mean, I've heard another consultant say a client should ask for all the information they want. Well, it comes at a price and saying it doesn't is kind of pretty naive in my in my view you know everything everything even if you put a penny against every attribute it still adds up now we've got not much time left mate but one i want to kind of cover off on one more bugbear with you just just as a sanity check but here in australia what really frustrates me is projects are being delivered in accordance with niso 19650 yet bim deliverables and traditional deliverables are separated they're in two separate documents like is that still happening in the UK or is that just a completely backwards thing here that we do down here, down under? Very simply, yeah, it's still happening here. But that's one of the things we've been trying to do is put, you know, bring it all together and, and put it into a single place and what do you call it, an exchange information requirement or even just more simply an information requirement. Um, yeah, it needs to be brought together and and then people really start to realise how much interconnection there is and as you saw probably from my Archie Intensive presentation the other day, one of our goals is to try and connect this up so that if you ask for a, a lift in the model and you've asked for a bunch of data about that model, that actually there's a load of documents that are relevant to that list uh, to that lift as well. So, yeah, trying to join it in one place is, is almost, yeah, it has to happen. Uh, it needs to happen more and probably isn't happening enough anywhere in the world at the moment. But I think we'll get there as clients mature at the, at the front end. And they'll realise that most of it isn't BIM at all. No, I mean, most of the information that most current projects ask for is unstructured information. And I do love people who say, oh, well, just get, we want to get rid of drawings, and I, I don't believe in drawings. Well, it's the currency that we exchange information we contractually were. agreed to, um, and it ain't going to disappear overnight. However, by working through the unstructured list of unstructured information, we can look at then how do we remove that from the process by understanding what else it's generating. And I think until you get this complete list, you can't then start to rationalize and look at automation or, or removing some of those things and saying, yeah, the model does deliver all of this stuff. So, you know, I think we can get there, but I think we have to go backwards first before we go forwards. Now, Rob, I think we've run out of time, mate, but I think you've covered off well and truly on uh, on my thoughts and, and your experiences that you've seen oh. as well in the UK and on the projects you've worked on. But, um, mate, thanks very much for your time again today. Uh, thanks for inviting me again, Nathan. We'll do it in another four years. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully we'll see each other again sooner face to face in that. But mate, one final question for you. And I and I'm and I'm interested to see if this has changed in the last four years. What does BIM mean to you? I'm just gonna keep this dead simple. Better information management. That's it. <laughs> I knew nothing had changed, mate. We we we, we, we don't we don't change at all. Thanks again for your time today, Rob. 
For more information on Rob Jackson and Bon Brian Digital, please head over to the podcast section on the SKUD website for further reading. I look forward to sharing our next podcast with you in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition, powered by Bond University's Building Information Modelling Program. Digital transition.